So throughout the Gospels, Jesus is not afraid to address the issue of sin. You simply have to read through the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll see that just in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus addresses a number of sins, including murder, adultery, lying, and revenge. But there is one sin in particular that I know as I read through the Gospels, I see coming up time and time again, and that Jesus continually sets his sights on and goes after, and that is the sin of moral self-righteousness. You know, the thought and feeling of moral superiority over others. Now, in a sense, we do, as Christians, have a morally superior worldview over that of someone who rejects the Word and the law of God. But the problem arises when these feelings of moral superiority either lead to self-righteousness and a blindness to our own sin in our own lives, or they cause us to look on those who do not live as we do with disdain or contempt. And it's especially tempting, I think, in our society today when all moral pursuit has just been completely thrown out the window. You know, society that condones and even celebrates flagrant sins. It's easy to hold up our life and compare that to the life of those who live around us and come to the conclusion that we're really not that bad, that we don't have too much to work on in comparison to them. They're the ones that, that need to be known and that need to know and, and hear about their sins, not really us. But there's a big issue with that because we don't measure ourselves against the sins of our culture or the standard of others. We measure ourselves against the standard of God. And the moment that we forget that, the moment we start comparing ourselves to others, we fall into that sin that Jesus hates so much, the sin of moral self-righteousness and pride, which is just as detestable to God as the sins that, that we rightly condemn among our culture. And not only is it detestable to God, but it can also prevent us from further knowing God, from enjoying God, from serving God, and being used by God. You see, God, God doesn't have anything to offer or any, any use for someone who doesn't see themselves as a sinner. I mean, what good is the crucified Savior who has died for our sins if you are not that bad of a sinner? Well, this morning... We're going to look at a passage that calls us to grips with the fact that one of the keys to living a faithful Christian life depends on how we understand our own sinfulness. If we fail to understand our sinfulness, we fail to understand our Savior. And if we fail to understand our Savior, we will fail to live and love our Savior. And so you can turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Luke chapter 7. And we'll look at verses 35 to chapter 8, verse 3. It's Luke chapter 7, starting in verse, sorry, 36 is where we'll be starting. And hear God's inspired and errant word this morning. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. 
And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who invited, invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. Our sermon this morning has one main point that we'll spend some time looking at first, and then afterwards we'll have four responses that are going to flow out of that main point. And the main point is is very simple, yet an essential truth for the Christian to understand. And that is that we are forgiven sinners. That we are forgiven sinners. And in order to show this, the story has two characters that are going to be contrasted for us. And the first character is a Pharisee, who we find out later in the the narrative is, is his name is Simon. And Simon has invited Jesus over to his house to have dinner and a time of, of discussion and fellowship. And Jesus, he accepts the invitation of Simon, so he goes and and begins to recline uh, at Simon's table. And because Jesus was somewhat of a public figure, even though uh, this dinner was taking place in someone's private household, 
Jesus was well known so that uh, the owner of the household would leave the doors open and, and anyone could come in and they could sit along the walls and they could listen to the, the discussion of these two, two men as they talked about the things of the Lord over dinner. And so, since this is a, a thing that could happen, we see entering into the home of Simon somewhat of an interesting character, the second character in our story. And the text identifies her in an interesting way. They call her a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, we aren't told in this passage or in, any, in anywhere else in the Bible what type of, of sinner this woman was. Many commentators think that she was likely a prostitute, but we don't know that for sure. But what we do know about her is that her sins are, are of a public nature. You know, Simon is able to, to identify her as a sinner because her sins were, were public. And Jesus knows that she is a sinner when he says, though her sins are, are many. And so this, this sin that she was caught in, whatever it was, it was public. People knew about it. She was known as a woman of the city and as a sinner. And so it would have been somewhat surprising in Jewish culture at that time that all of a sudden she is entering into the house of, of this Pharisee to hear the words of Jesus. But she's not just there to, to hear. Look at what she does in verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now you can picture kind of this unordinary scene happening here. Jesus reclining, he's lying down at the table eating his dinner. And all of a sudden this, this woman enters in. And instead of staying along the edges of the room, she comes in. And she just begins to break down and to weep before Jesus. And she takes those tears and she uses them to wet the feet of Jesus. And then she takes her hair and she wipes away all the, the dirt and, and, and mud that is now on his, his feet. And then she kisses his feet. And then she anoints them and, and, and rubs them with this, this ointment. And this would have been expensive perfume, not something, uh, not just some some oil that she, she picked up on her way to, to the house of Simon. And as Simon is, is watching all of this unfold, he sits there and it says he says to himself, and he, he thinks to himself, if Jesus were truly a prophet, he would know that, that this woman who is who's coming and, and touching his feet and doing all these things to him is a sinner. You know, if he is truly sent by God... What is he doing associating with that type of person, that type of sinner? But these thoughts of Simon reveal for us, I think, two errors in his thinking and, and, and in our thinking that we can often have. And Jesus is going to address these. And the first is that Simon has this view that the righteous do not associate with the unrighteous. You know, you have oil, you have water, they don't mix together. If someone is truly holy, they're not going to bring themselves down to a level and associate with the unholy. But I think Jesus really demonstrates for us that that's, that's a faulty view. You see, Jesus came himself to be a light in the darkness. And if the light is to, 
push back the darkness, the light must come in contact with the darkness. You know, if you take a flashlight and you, you put your hand over where the light is coming out, no, no, no light is going to cause that darkness to, to recede. It's only when the light comes in contact with the darkness that it is able to overcome it. And so if Jesus is, as he says, here to seek and to save the lost, he must in one way or another associate with the lost. And there's some application for us in that as well. If we are to save the lost, like Christ has called us to go to the lost and to proclaim the gospel, we must be among them. We don't save them by, by keeping to ourselves and forming our own little you know, holy community that is only for those who are, are part of the holiness club, but by going out into the world with the hope of the gospel, by going to the front lines, and by taking the light that we have and, and chasing the darkness away. And so that's Simon's first error in his thinking, that holy people, if they are truly holy, never associate with unholy people. But his second error, I think, is even more detrimental you see, he's divided people into the holy and righteous and the unholy and the unrighteous. And in his pride and to his shame, he sees himself as part of, of this righteous crowd instead of the unrighteous. You know, he thinks me and Jesus, us teachers, us, us people who know the Word of God, us righteous livers, livers we are, if that's a word, we are in this, this holy club of the righteous. And that woman, she's over there in that unholy club. She's part of the unrighteous. But you see, the problem with that is he might claim to know the Word of God, but that's, that's the exact opposite of what the Word of God says. As I read from Romans 3, Paul literally goes back to the Old Testament and pulls out ten different verses that talk about how we are not holy. We are not part of the righteous. No one seeks God. No one understands him. None is good. No, not one. And so Simon is an heir because he really belongs in the same category as this sinful woman. Jesus alone stands in the righteous group. Everybody else is in that of unrighteous. And so if Simon is, is seeing things properly and, and, they, and he still thinks, you know, the righteous shouldn't associate with the, the unrighteous, then he should think Jesus should never be dining with a sinner like him. And so Jesus, knowing the thoughts of Simon, then decides to, to tell him a parable to correct him on his faulty thinking. And in this parable, what you have is two people who owe money to a moneylender. One owes substantially more than the other, but both are in a place where they're unable to pay the debt back to this moneylender. And the moneylender, in his kindness, decides to forgive them both of their debt, absolving them of what they owe, and they get to now leave debt-free. And so Jesus tells him this parable, and he asks Simon a question, who do you think is going to love the moneylender more? And the answer is, is somewhat obvious, and Simon didn't have to, too much, to have have to know too much to, to see that the answer is, is quite clear. It's the one who had the bigger debt is the one who's going to love more and be more thankful. You know, a parallel situation would be someone being pardoned of a crime. You know, who's going to be more thankful? Someone who is, is on death row or in prison for life or someone who's in for 
a small charge just for the night in their local jailhouse. Well, it's going to be the one who has the the bigger punishment that is sitting before them and looming over them. And now Jesus tells this parable not not to talk about money and to talk about debts, but to relate it to our sin and the forgiveness of God. You see, it's, I don't know if you ever thought of it this way, but it's, it's very helpful to think of our sin in terms of debt. Think of our sin in terms of debt. Let me explain. You see, God as our creator, he has given us all life. God has given us something. He's, he's made us alive. He's given us the breath that is in our lung. He's given us our brains, our thought, our wills, our bodies, everything that we have. God has given that to us. And when we think of the idea of lending money, we recognize that, that money doesn't actually belong to the person to whom the money is given. The money that is given belongs to the money lender. And he's lending that money with the expectation of getting his money back at some time. And likewise, the life that we have been given by God really belongs to God, not to us. God expects us not to waste the life that that he has given, but to use it for its proper purpose, which is to glorify, honor, obey, know, and enjoy God. And so, just as a moneylender says here, I'm giving you this money to go and do something with it that you've told me this is the purpose of that money. God gives us our life with a particular purpose. But this is where the problem lies. Because instead of doing those things, glorifying, honoring, loving God, we've taken the life that God has given us, and we have absolutely squandered it. We have totally wasted it. We've chased after sin. We've sought the glory of God for ourselves. We've rejected His will in favor of our own. We've spat in His face by trampling over (coughs) His commandments. We owed God a life of absolute holiness and obedience, and we have all failed to do that. And some people think, well, it's my life. Well, it's not your life. It's a life that you've been given by God. And on judgment day, when we have to give an account for what we've done and the life that God has given us, and we have to pay back the loan or the debt that God has given us, return to Him what He has entrusted to us, which is our lives, all of a sudden, This perfect, clean life that he has given us is defiled, it's filthy, it's unholy, and it's unacceptable before God. Think of it this way. (coughs) It's as if a friend loaned you a really nice car. They bought this brand new, expensive car, and and they let you go and take it out for a drive. And as you're driving it, you spill coffee all over it, you smash the windshield with a rock, you pop the tires, you put the wrong gas in the engine, you dent the bumper, you drive right into a telephone pole, you rack up a DUI on, on, the, on the vehicle, and then you say, well, I'll just call a tow truck, and he can drive the truck back to my friend, and I can put a little note, thanks for the ride, here's your car back. Was your friend going to accept that car back from you? No, he's going to rightfully say to you, you owe me a new car. I entrusted you this car, and look at what you've done to it. And the same is true with God, but it's on on a far greater level. 
We've done far worse than, than smashing up a car. You owe God a life of perfect holiness. And because you've returned to him a sin-stained life and you have no way to clean it up and you have no spiritual money to purchase a new life and return to God back a different one. And since you cannot pay that debt, there's only one way that justice is to be satisfied. And the Bible says that that is with your death. That you must pay for what you've done, for what you've destroyed with your death. You've squandered your life and so now it's going to be taken from you. For the wages of sin is death. And it's not just physical death. <clears throat> You're not going to get off that easy. It's an eternal death where you will pay for your sins and for what you have done to God and what he has entrusted you for all of eternity in the fires of hell, receiving your just punishment for your sin and rebellion against God. You see, that is the unpayable debt that we owe. But... But God, though he has every single right to throw each and every one of us into hell for all of eternity, and he would have done absolutely nothing wrong by doing that. In his infinite mercy and grace, he has released us from our debt. How? Not by just letting the the debt go unpaid, but by sending his own son to pay the debt that you owe, and to bear the wrath of God in your place for your sin. You see, God is owed a perfect life of holiness, one that you can't present back to him. But Jesus came, and Jesus lived that perfect life. And now there is a life that can be given to God that is perfect. And Christ, instead of taking his perfect, sinless life and presenting it to God on his own behalf and hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant, he takes it and he gives it to you so that now you can return to God the perfect life that you owe him. And he takes the old life that you have defiled, that you have squandered, that you have stained, and he takes it all upon himself. And he bears the full weight of the wrath of God on the cross that you deserved, paying your debt in full, leaving you to walk away righteous, debt-free, and forgiven. Now that is the greatest message that there is. That is the greatest thing that has ever happened. There is nothing that comes close to what Christ has done for us on the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. But it's only good news if you understand this morning that you are a terrible sinner before God, that you deserve punishment for your sin, that you are at the mercy of God alone for your salvation, because if you don't understand that, then Jesus is not your Savior, because you don't need a Savior, because you're not a sinner. See, Simon the Pharisee, he missed that. He missed that he was a terrible sinner, and and not just a sinner in a general way, yeah, we all, we all sin. No, he missed out that he was a sinner, and because of that, he missed out that he had the mercy and grace of God offered to him. And so this morning, I want you to, to be honest with yourself. Do you see yourself as a sinner? And like I said, not just a general way, yeah, I sin. Do you see yourself as as morally 
bankrupt before God. That your sins are, are evil and just as evil as those out there. That apart from the mercy of God, you are absolutely nothing. That you have stained and defiled your life with your sin. Ask yourself, why, why do you believe in Jesus? Is it because you recognize that really apart from him, there is absolutely nothing good in you? Or do you believe in Jesus for some other reason? What he can offer you, and the fellowship that comes from being in a church? Or is it because you see there's, there's absolutely no way that you're escaping from the debt that you owe apart from him? Simon was a sinner who didn't know it. The sinful lady was a sinner who knew it. And only one of them understood the weight of, of what God had done for them. And because of that, only one of them in our passage hear those words from Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And so I hope that you can hear those words this morning. It's crushing to come to the realization how sinful we actually are, but we are not left in the depths of despair because we know how merciful God actually is. And so if you are in Christ this morning, know that you are a terrible sinner, but also know that all of your sins, all of your sins have been completely forgiven by Jesus Christ. And so that's the main point of our sermon this morning, that we are forgiven sinners. There's two parts to that. First, you are a terrible sinner before the Lord. But second, you are a forgiven sinner, that Christ has taken all of that. And now let's look at our four responses that flow from when we understand this. And those responses are these. Understanding that we are forgiven sinners produces gratitude, produces love, produces faith, and produces service. And so first, understanding that we are sinners produces gratitude. And we see this very clearly in contrast between Simon and the sinful woman. Look at verses 44 to 46 from our text. Then turning toward the woman, he said to the woman, do you see this woman? Or he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So here we see that Jesus really gives a, a scathing rebuke to Simon here. Now he, he's talking to Simon, but he turns and he faces the woman. And as he's looking at her, he's speaking to Simon and he's shaming him for his lack of gratitude. Now it wasn't necessary that Simon, you know, wash Jesus' feet and anoint them with expensive perfume. I don't think Simon was, was being unhospitable by having Jesus over and not doing all of these things. But the point that Jesus is making is that if Simon truly understood his sin and therefore truly understood the forgiveness that Jesus offered, he would have been so full of gratitude that he would have done exactly as this woman did. You know, the woman was so thankful that she was weeping tears of gratitude. And with those tears, she washed the feet of her Savior. And not only that, she, she takes this expensive jar of perfume, which some commentators said would have been as much as a year's salary, 
And she goes, and because she is so grateful to God, she's willing to sacrifice this great cost to honor her Savior and Redeemer. You see here, if, if we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, this is also going to be our hearts. We will be a people who overflow with thanksgiving to God. We will, we will weep at times for what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We will, we will sacrifice for him. Even if to the world it, it looks ridiculous what we're doing, we're so thankful that we don't care. We don't care what the world thinks. We'll, we'll give to the Lord all of ourselves. And that's not how you feel towards God. Maybe you're like, I just don't feel that. I don't, I don't understand that. I don't get where that comes from. I think maybe you don't understand quite all that God has done for you. Because either you don't understand your sin or you don't understand the immensity of his forgiveness. And so the first response to understanding that we are forgiven sinners is that it produces gratitude and thanksgiving in our hearts. Second response, when we understand that we are forgiven sinners, it produces love. Look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Forgot part of my sermon. (laughs) If we see ourselves as forgiven little, because we see our sins as little, then we are going to love little. That's the equation that Jesus puts before us, just like Simon. But if we see ourselves as forgiven much because we see that we have sinned much, then we are going to love much, just like the sinful woman. And this is very important for us. We can't ignore this because the greatest commandment is that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and primary goal of the Christian. I'm, not, I'm sure that most of you are probably familiar with the first question of the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief purpose of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the chief way that we glorify God is through loving Him, through obedience to those first two and greatest commands. Now, this might just be me, but I'm not sure. Do do you ever read through the Bible, and when you come across characters like David, or you come across people like Paul, and, and you read of their this, this love for the Lord as they write the Psalms and as they, they write the epistles and you say to yourself, I want, I want what they have. You, know, you desire that, that deep love and drive for relational intimacy with the Lord. You know, I, I know I'm supposed to love the Lord, but I, I struggle with that. I struggle to put Him first. I, I struggle to seek out a relationship with Him. I struggle to be captivated by who he is and the greatness of his love and of his character. You know, I want to love him, but my heart, it's just, it's not into it. I just, it's not there. It's not what I read in the Word about those who have gone before me. And does that describe you? Does that, does that describe your longing at times? Well, I think this passage shows us that one of the ways that we move from this wanting to love the Lord to actually loving the Lord with all of our hearts is to be continually recognizing your own sinfulness 
while simultaneously recognizing God's great forgiveness towards you. Remember, the one who had the larger debt loved the money lender more. And this definitely takes some, some self-reflection and examination. I mean, how often do you think of your own sin? If I were to ask you, what are the top five sins that you struggle with? Could you, could you name them just like that because you're aware of your sin and you know what you struggle with and you hate your sin? Or do you think, or, or do you just not think of your own sinfulness very much? Does, does what's happening in the world and what's going around you prevent you from reflecting on how you have fallen short of the glory of God? I mean, if that is you, then don't expect to think of Christ's forgiveness very much. If you don't ever think about your sin, why would you ever think about His forgiveness? And if you don't ever think about His forgiveness, why would you expect to love Him as the one who has forgiven you? If we are to love God as we are called to do, and I think many of us want to do, we first need to grasp our own sin, which will cause us to grasp how wide and long and deep and high is the love of Christ. So that's the second thing that understanding that we are forgiven sinners produces. Gratitude, love, and now moving on to the third, it produces faith. Look at verse 49 and 50. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so we see here that it's, it's the woman's faith that has saved her. It wasn't the acts that she did when she came in to, to love the Lord. That, caught, that, that happened because she understood that she was forgiven. And she cast her faith upon a forgiving Savior. And the same is true for us. We will only understand and, and cast ourselves on God in faith if we see that we are truly sinners. See, in the, in the world today and in the church today, there are many people who see themselves as, you know, not too bad. We stumble now and again, but on the whole, we're pretty good. And so then what, what do we need a Savior for? Well, if you're here this morning and you've yet to turn to Jesus in faith, I pray that the Lord would be merciful to you and that he would reveal to you your sin. And that you would see that you do deserve the wrath of God for your sin. But I also pray that you would see that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Like me, like you. Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief of sinners. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so if you humble yourself before him and you turn away from those sins and you turn to him in faith, Christ says the exact same thing he said to that woman in the passage. Your sins are forgiven. They've been wiped away. Your debt is being paid. There is freedom for you now in Christ. There is peace for you in Christ. And there is eternal life. And so come to him in faith if you haven't done that. And then finally... The last response, we see that understanding that we are forgiven sinners produces service. It produces service for the Lord. Let me read 
chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. See, now in our passage, of course, we have the the woman, the sinful woman, as an example of serving Jesus. But then Luke continues on and he talks about all of these other women and the 12 disciples who have all come from these places of sin and God has redeemed them and in response to their redemption, they're now living lives in service of the Lord and the kingdom of God. You see, if we truly understand the love of God in Christ Jesus, we're not going to be, be able to withhold our service from the Lord. <coughs> we will say, Lord, take my time. Take my gifts. Take my children. Take my money. Even take my life, Lord, and use it for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. See, there are many motivations in this world for serving the Lord. You know, our Christian duty, that we have a duty before God to serve Him. Our fear of punishment, that we don't really want, to be, want to be punished for our, our sins. Our desire for reward, to hear those words from Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. And all of these are, are good things, but none of them are going to drive you to serve the Lord as much as a deep gratitude and love for what Christ has done for you. You know, if we want to see our world change, if we want to see our families change, if we want to see the kingdom of God advance and the church of Christ built up, it begins with loving and cherishing our Lord and Savior each and every day of our lives. And from that is going to flow an uncontainable desire to serve the Lord wherever it is he might call you. And so as you can see, this passage is not as a, a clear, you know, I want you to go and do these things. This, this isn't the sermons like many of us do like and appreciate of, you know, here are five commands and go and obey these, these five commands and, and, and do your job and you'll be good to go. You know, this passage, it's different. It calls us not to change our actions. It calls us to change our minds, to change our minds, to focus our minds upon the things that are important. And so you can, you can leave here this morning and you can just ignore what's been said. You can go on your way and, and there's really two ways that you can go. You know, the first is to say, that's wonderful for those sinners who needed to hear that message, just like Simon said, and continue to walk in your own moral self-righteousness and no awareness of sin or concern of sin in your life. Or there's a second way you can go, as the sinful woman did. And you can be honest about your sin. You can be aware of your sin. You can hate your sin, and you can repent of your sin. And then you can cast yourself upon the glorious riches and the immeasurable love of Christ and the forgiveness that God has given us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And your life is going to be changed. 
You don't have to go out and do better because if you focus upon the Lord, you will do better. It will produce in you gratitude. It will produce in you love. It will produce in you faith and service toward the Lord. And then one day when you do have to return back that body to the Lord to give back what He has lended you, maybe it won't be as sin-stained as it once was. Let me pray.